Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, this is Firoz Manji speaking from Organising in the Time of COVID-19. I'm really pleased today to have uh, Rob Wallace uh, with us. Rob is uh, author of an extraordinary book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, which was published by uh, Monthly Review Press. It focuses on the, on the role of the agro-industrial complex uh, with short, provocative essays that challenge and draw collect connections between industrial farming practices, ecological degradation, and viral epidemiology. Uh, Wallace uh, links biological and economic uh, uh, phenomena, place, capital, and power in discussions about the disease outbreak uh, dynamics. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, an extraordinary polymath, in my uh, my opinion. Um, so, so uh, Rob, a, a warm welcome to to the show. Oh, um, I I gather you're an ev evolutionary biologist and a visiting scholar at the Institute of Global Studies at the University of Minnesota. But I gather that you also uh, uh, are a deli clerk at a local sandwich shop. Yes, I, I, I am no longer that, but I was for a while. Um, I uh, was in the Department of Geography at University of Minnesota, and then when I spoke out about the, the role agribusiness plays in, uh, in the emergence of uh, swine flu, two, uh, H1N1 2009, I, uh, my contract wasn't renewed, uh, so I had to pay some bills and had to... Uh, uh, along the way, along with doing some tutoring, I uh, I spent about a year uh, making sandwiches in a local uh, uh, sandwich shop here in St. Paul. With, with good meat, I hope. I hope so. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I would not recommend it. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob, I mean, I, I suspect that not many people have have had the opportunity to read your 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 outstanding book, um, uh, but. So it would quite help if you were to able to give us a sort of synthesis of the of the main arguments. I mean, the title says, "Big farms make big flu." Well, really, what's the evidence? Yeah, well, I, I maybe should back up a little and explain how I got to that place. Uh, as you said, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and um, I um, uh, began to look at genetics of uh, influenzas, um, primarily H5N1. That was the celebrity virus in the uh, 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 in the 2000s and um, okay. look at uh, how we can look at the genetics and see how using the genetics to basically reconstruct maps of the how the virus moves place to place and we figured out that uh, uh, H5N1 emerged out of a southeastern province in China uh, called Guangdong uh, that's uh, just across the way from Hong Kong and uh, from there it spread um, uh, across China and, and across much of Eurasia um, I made the mistake of becoming curious about something. That's not always the best thing uh, in terms of one's uh, career in science. Um, I was <laughs> curious about why, for instance, uh, did uh, H5N1 emerge out of Guangdong in 1997? Um, so, and the genetic sequences can't speak to that, uh, the whys and wherefores. So I got into things like the uh, history of agriculture in China, the economic geography of uh, uh, agriculture and uh, uh, the global expanse of agribusiness, and uh, uh, just, of course, many of my evolutionary bi biologist uh, colleagues didn't understand what I was doing. 
And uh, but it, I got into some uh, answers uh, concerning the relationship between uh, the evolution and spread of, of, of pathogens and the uh, economic context in which they're in. And uh, looking through a lot of literature, I uh, began to be able to piece together how um, uh, pathogens evolve in the context in which they are, rather than in, in merely in the context in which we model them. A lot of the uh, evolutionary models are kind of sandbox models saying if uh, 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 pathogens confronted with a, a large population, uh, what does it evolve, how it might, uh, you might be able to select for more deadliness, and we'll get more into that in just a second. And I made the decision to try to connect that to the how the environment uh, actually is, what exactly the context is in which these pathogens are evolving. But as far as uh, answering your uh, question directly, um, how do big farms make big flu? I often start this uh, discussion by looking at it from the context of the, of the view of the, uh, of the virus itself, uh, whether it's the influenza, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's uh, 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 Ebola or any of those pathogens. And, and you uh, start off with the notion that if you have infected an individual host, there's something of a cap on how much of a, of a badass you can be, how much, uh, how deadly you can be. If you, uh, um, yeah. Can I just interrupt them? We're talking about viruses that are originally in animals and then ah. trans get move across to humans right well at, at this point um um that is all a bit of a mix now uh, I, I think clearly this particular covid uh outbreak indicates that uh uh we very much share the kind of uh um, context in which uh, animals and w whether they're wild animals or livestock share. Uh, it's not quite one-to-one, -one, but there's a lot of uh, overlay and spillover. And so here we have uh, COVID-19, uh, SARS-2, uh, apparently emerge out of uh, uh, some wild bats. Uh, at some point, it uh, uh, it recombined with uh, a SARS that had infected a pangolin. Uh, that's where we're at right now in terms of our understanding of it. And uh, before it made its way to infecting humans and going to human-human. And what's extraordinary about that is that we have to ask ourselves all sorts of questions that the genetics itself uh, does not actually uh, ascertain, which is uh, how did a strain of SARS circulating in wild bats make its way across uh, into perhaps a, a human that was also infected by uh, uh, SARS that had been in a pangolin, which is a kind of a scaly mammalian that's been sold in the wild food markets. And how did it make its way to uh, the largest market, uh, apparently the largest market in Wuhan, uh, in which uh, from there, uh, apparently spilled over and began going to human human. Um, and that gets us into the notion that these uh, pathogens uh, uh, share uh, uh, this wide expanse of um, uh, ecologies that extend from the deepest forest all the way uh, to uh, what essence was a, a regional city and then subsequently onto the um, uh, global travel network. Um, so from, from to tie that up into the, uh, the, the, the notion of how this pathogens, uh, from the vantage of the pathogen, if you're in a, a bat, say our, our SARS-2 there and, and, uh, and a bat and the forest is a complex thing and it's, uh, uh, it's unlikely that you come across uh, other hosts in, in any um, quick uh, 
tempo uh, because as anyone who's been in a neotropical forest or, or any uh, a natural habitat, things are actually quite complex there. And um, it's not easy to line up a whole series of hosts to, to uh, be able to sprint out of the forest and onto the, uh, the global travel network. But when we do things like deforest, we in essence simplify the forest in such a way that uh, many hosts uh, that carry deadly pathogens might die off, but some hosts actually do very well in this context. And so they're able to uh, ad adapt and adjust to the deforestation in such a way. And oftentimes it leads uh, to a, uh, moving toward uh, uh, local uh, farm operations where there's plenty of food, there's uh, fewer predators, there's uh, a lot of space to fly from your roosting site to your foraging site, and that increases the interface between these wild animals and uh, the humans that are tending the local livestock uh, or perhaps tending um, uh, local uh, uh, plantation crops. Uh, so the rate of spillover increases and the expanse of the diversity of uh, pathogens uh, also uh, spill, uh, increases. So we have a greater traffic from what was circulating in wildlife uh, into humans and then subsequently uh, moving on into the local uh, cities. And we can get into the, con the discussion about why that is, uh, how that comes about in, in short course. But I wanted to attach that back to the advantage of the virus. So from the virus point, uh, if it's not able to line up a host in any short order, then uh, there's a, a selection process for strains that are less uh, virulent uh, in terms of being able to, uh, because if it hit, kills its host too fast, then it's not able to line up the next host in any short order. Of course. Uh, the problem is, what was that? Sure, of course, yeah. Right. Uh, the, the problem is, is that when you either simplify the forest or find a pathogen makes its way to an industrial uh, livestock or poultry operation, uh, then any uh, virus that hits a host now doesn't have to worry about waiting out on terms of the amount of replication it does to get to a point that it can infect the next host because the next host is right there, right up against uh, him or her. And so the uh, it selects for the strains that are most virulent, able to burn through the population as, as fast as possible. Uh, so in essence, the structure of the how we raise our livestock and for plant diseases crops uh, serves as a means by which uh, we can select for the more virulent pathogens. Um, it, is, is this help us understand? Um, once you have it, what's happening in these industrial farming? Uh, how are animals treated? I was reading somewhere about the breeding of of featherless chickens as, as right. a way of increasing profit. Uh, is that the kind of thing that's uh, happening? Right. And then what you're getting at is uh, that's an example um, uh, some breeding of, of uh, featherless birds in Israel. And it has to do with removing a, a process of defeathering at the at the processing plant. Uh, it hasn't caught on uh, internationally yet, but um, the point of that, of course, is that the uh, poultry are being raised in such a way uh, as an economic unit rather than as a biological uh, animal or, or at best a bioeconomic conglomeration of uh, animal and protein on a couple legs stumbling about uh, so in order to make uh, profit best for the uh, agribusinesses that are, are uh, backing uh, their uh, development and sale. Um, 
So from the, the virus's vantage point, um, I would uh, basically argue that uh, factory farms or industrial operations or intensive operations, however you might want to call them, are, in my mind, the best way to engineer the most virulent pathogens possible. And I spoke about how the concentrations can actually lead to selecting for virulence, but there are other things involved in, in terms of the economic model uh, by which factory farms are, are backed. And that has to do with everything from the fact that uh, genetically all the birds are the same, so there is no diversity involved in them, and they're they're basically uh, selected for morphometric characteristics like big growing fast growth, big breasts. They're all uh, selected to be able to grow to the same size and have the same characteristics, so that the birds, uh, in essence, uh, are are um, all the same. So you know, when you as a, 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 a agribusiness, you know that you are selling the same product everywhere, very much like the McDonald's model of uh, having the same store everywhere where around the world. Um, we, uh, the uh, processors and the uh, integrators want the uh, birds to be the same wherever they sell. And from the vantage point of, of a capitalist um, operation, that makes a lot of sense. But from the vantage point of uh, a growing water, in essence, living organisms, that's not such a good idea. Um, for a pathogen that gets into a population, let's say a barn of uh, 15,000 industrial turkeys in one barn or 250,000 uh, egg layers of, of chickens in a, in a barn, if they're all genetically same, it's all food for flu. It just uh, pathogen will just get in there and, and burn right through. There's no immunological diversity. You don't have the diverse immuno, immunogenetics necessary to keep a, a pathogen from uh, uh, blocking a pathogen from going host to host. Uh, once a pathogen is able to figure out one immune system, then it can figure out all the other immune systems in that barn and shoot right through. That's very interesting. I mean, we often talk about monoculture in terms of farming, agricultural um, plants and so on, and trees and whatever, uh, and the same destructive behaviors uh, occur there. It hadn't occurred to me that, of course, that that uh, industrial agriculture, industrial farming of, of animals is the equivalent of producing yeah. an, in an intense position uh, monoculture. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, that's where the, the crux of the matter is. And uh, the monoculture aspect of it is, is the utterly destructive thing. And, and we're talking about numbers that uh, strip out uh, our notions of even understanding. I mean, my take on it is that we moved from something called planet Earth to planet farm. Um, almost the entirety by vast amount of, uh, of biomass and millions of tons are now in livestock and poultry compared to wildlife and even uh, humans. Uh, so in essence, our uh, planet is encircled by cities of hog and cities of poultry producing uh, manure that rivals the, the, the large international cities around the world. Uh, there are parts of Iowa uh, simple little watersheds with maybe 20,000 people in there that are producing the uh, livestock waste of the equivalent of the people of Chicago. Um, so you have a vast Holy amount. Holy shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you have vast amounts of, uh, of, of waste, but, but it's a marker of uh, the biomass involved. And, uh, and in essence, there is no cap on uh, how virulent these pathogens can, can get. Uh, I mean, I've seen pictures of uh, barns uh, hit by H5N1 um, in which every bird went down except one or two stragglers. And um, 
And uh, the uh, awful irony about that is that those stragglers, maybe by chance they didn't die, maybe by some quirk in their immunogenetics, they could be uh, they could be somehow resistant to the H5N1. And we would think, okay, well, maybe we could use those birds as the uh, uh, progenitors of a next generation, because then they would have some sort of resistance to this virus. Well, the industrial model doesn't allow for that. There is no reproduction on site. Uh, all the uh, breeding is done at the grandparent level offshore. Uh, they're only uh, bred for these uh, uh, morphometric characteristics. So in essence, the industrial model also keeps us from being able to do the things necessary to uh, evolve resistance to a circulating pathogen. Uh, so in essence, uh, the uh, uh, virus has, is, it's all lined up for the virus to be as virulent as possible. Well, I, really, if I understand you right, you're saying all our cities are surrounded by this kind of industrial agriculture, intensive uh, uh, farming. Um, but but it's originated in China, and 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 people talk about the, you know your president talks about the Chinese virus. Uh, uh, so so the question. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But it's it's a painful truth. But please continue. No, no. But so 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 what was it about uh, the the form of uh, industrial agriculture in China? Are we talking about uh, state farming, or are we talking about corporate farming, which is increasing? Well, all the transnational, the oligopolies become very uh, substantial presence in China. Right, right. Well, you know, it, it took us a couple of years to really get to a point where we could actually put all the pieces together in that way. And uh, that's the unfortunate thing of running multiple uh, natural experiments, as it were, and you can put natural in quotes. But, uh, you know, coming out of a lot of the influenza stuff and then subsequently you had the uh, emergence of uh, the SARS in 2002, 2003, you have the emergence of uh, uh, MERS, you have uh, Ebola, you have Zika, you have uh, African swine fever, you have the, uh, as I said, the influenzas, and uh, some of these emerge out of China, but that's not the only thing going on. You had H5NX emerge and, and spread out and do its worst damage in Europe. You have H5N2 uh, here in the United States. You have the swine flu H1N1 that I mentioned emerge uh, just outside of Mexico City. Uh, so it's certainly not a matter of that all the terrible pathogens emerge out of China. And that's a, China is a special case, and I'll get to that in a second, but I want to get to uh, what we kind of realized, and that you, in essence, have um, a change in the kind of regional farming geographies. And in essence, as uh, development and deforestation happens in the context of agriculture, um, this is primarily driven by... Um, industrial production that is trying to get at the last of uh, the so-called virgin farmland available to be able to raise uh, commodity crops or uh, commodity livestock. And uh, that increases the interface with the, uh, the, the local wildlife and, as we discussed before, the increases the traffic of uh, exotic pathogens that are spilling over. Um, but those uh, uh, livestock are, 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 in, are, in essence, have also led to a change in the rural landscapes in such a way that uh, uh, rural landscapes are increasingly turned in these, into these peri-urban continuums, these kind of a, amazing wild am amalgams of the urban and rural together. Uh, you know, I've seen photos of, of uh, such uh, 
uh, things in Vietnam where you'll have a kind of town that looks uh, on its way toward being a city, but also have a local um, forest nearby. You might have hog, industrial hog, uh, but also local wildlife uh, walking through the streets. And, you know, I'm not trying to exoticize it. It's, it's just that there's a foundational shift in this divide that we've had in our minds for so long between the rural and urban. And that, in essence, is part and parcel of the kind of uh, smoothing out, as it were, of that divide so that if a pathogen were to emerge uh, out on the forest edge, it has a nice straight shot through the kind of urbanized rural landscape uh, on its way into the local uh, city. So on one end, we have a kind of a neoliberalized frontier on the forest that's being increasingly commoditized. Uh, Locals are being driven out out of subsistence uh, farming, forced toward the city for in order to pay their bills, uh, in essence, forced into a kind of cycle migration where uh, in the city they may have jobs, but because of uh, union busting, they're not able to make much of a living, enough of a living. So they're forced during the growing seasons to go back home in the rural areas to help with their family plots. So indeed, Along with the uh, smoothing out of the forest and the trafficking of livestock from the forest to the to the city, you have a, a more interconnection of uh, of people in the city and in the rural landscapes by virtue of this this uh, economic structure. And so, this thing that was previously divided and pathogens were separated out by this kind of um, uh, uh, isolation by distance has been in essence smashed. And we got our mind wrapped around this uh, primarily when we were just looking at the rise of uh, Ebola out of West Africa in 2013. Um, you look at the genetics of that Ebola outbreak. Um, I mean, it, it, it emerged, it infected 35,000 people, it killed 11,000 people, leaving bodies in the uh, streets of these regional capitals. When previously, going back to 1976, in essence, uh, all the Ebola outbreaks, for the most part, uh, would be uh, spilling over locally, taking out a village or two or a guerrilla troop. I mean, terrible things. I mean, the case fatality rates are, are 90%. Uh, I mean, it was a terrible thing to witness, but it's a whole order of business different if, uh, you know, you have a pathogen that spills out and, and affects 35,000 people into the local capitals. Now, if you look at the genetics of that uh, Ebola, it wasn't really that different from the previous Ebolas. I uh, had the same clinical course, same uh, uh, transmission generation time. I uh, really wasn't that different. So our focus on these objects of these pathogens kind of misses out that the uh, virus, uh, it's not necessarily merely a matter of what the virus is doing, how it's evolved, as we have so far discussed. But you can have a change in the background in which uh, it is uh, emerging. And our take on it is, and we got into some trouble for this, we, nobody likes to hear these things, but we did uh, call the, uh, this Ebola the neoliberal Ebola, uh, in part because the virus itself hasn't changed, but the context in West Africa has, even though Liberia has been uh, uh, corporatized or multinationalized uh, going back to 1925, the uh, Guinea near next door was in essence largely uh, uh, isolated, untouched and by the uh, international capital. That uh, changed upon the uh, uh, emergence of democracy there. And uh, what we ended up having is uh, what was subsistence farming and our focus on was on uh, palm oil in the area. 
the the uh, the government there pushed toward uh, moving toward a more parastatal uh, company, uh, moving uh, subsistence palm oil to more of an industrialized model on its way toward letting multinationals into, in essence, turn it into an export economy. And that, uh, as we were getting at before, simplified the forest in such a way that the, the baths, who are the natural reservoir uh, for Ebola, uh, moved as the forest is destroyed. They don't just roll over and die. Many of these animals have uh, behavioral plasticity that allows them to react uh, and survive. And so they, um, you know, move business to the local plantations where they thrived, increases uh, the transmission rate to, to human populations. Um, or it could be insectivore bats, frugivore bats, whether they're uh, in palm oil or, or another commodity crop, uh, increases that traffic in such a way that the spillover goes. And then, of course, there's the other side of it. And I think you were uh, uh, we were talking about this before, but uh, there's uh, that's kind of the supply end of the virus in terms of, uh, of where it's coming from. But there's unfortunately also something of a demand end. Not that anybody's demanding this, but uh, uh, the structural adjustment programs that West Africa has uh, been subjected to, where countries need to agree to restructure their economies in order to get international loans from the World Bank and the IMF, uh, leads to the kind of uh, decline in... in uh, Budgets for um, budgets for uh, uh, public uh, health systems, for hospitals, for animal health systems, in such a way that if someone is does contract Ebola, they go to the local hospital. And uh, given how noisy some of the symptoms are, it might be loss of fever, it might be something else. Uh, the uh, medical system isn't in a position to be able to identify that this is indeed an Ebola um, infection, which leads to the increase in spillover. And by virtue of the uh, cycle migration we discussed, um, leads to Ebola, um, uh, in essence, walking through the streets of, of our regional capitals. So what I'm getting at to wind up this point is that there's an increasing geographic uh, extent and uh, integration between what happens in even the most um, um, far away uh, uh, neotropical forests and uh, through this peri-urban uh, continuum the landscape of uh, rural landscapes all the way into the most uh, so-called sophisticated cities that are e deeply and quickly connected to the global travel network. So that a pathogen that might be in the lungs of a bat um, or might be in a bat circulating in a bat, uh, uh, you know, uh, at the end of uh, November uh, uh, 2019, might be in the lungs of a of Miami beachgoer by the by uh, February fifteenth of the next year, and so that's an extraordinary uh, uh, ratcheting up and speeding of this process of spillover of these exotic pathogens uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, that that's that's fascinating. I think um, the, the 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 huge growth of industrial agriculture. Uh, intensive uh, livestock farming um, that has really gone exp almost exponential since the 1990s, and that's the birth of of the latest phase of capital, that is the neoliberal phase, and and it is precisely that neoliberal phase that created the conditions, it seems, for the spread by the deforestation by the, the uh, agriculture method, and of course the, the interaction between town and and and, and rural. 
But it seems to me there's another dimension of that. Mm. I mean, it, one of the things that struck me uh, from the discussions I've had with lots of people from across the global south is that um, while it's true that the virus is, this particular virus, new coronavirus, is, uh, is lethal, it, the illness it causes uh, is eminently treatable. But that the vast majority of people who are being killed by it are those who have little or no access to health care. Um, and, and so uh, most people talk about the virus, that, that COVID, you know, it's, uh, if there's an underlying health problem, uh, you are likely to be killed. Uh, what these, these uh, stories uh, begin to suggest is that if you have an underlying wealth problem, you are likely to be killed. What's your view on that? Um, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, the reasons why people um, make, uh, die from an infection extend to all sorts of uh, reasons, in, um, you know, age of, uh, is, a, is indeed a factor. Um, where, when during an outbreak you've been infected, if you're infected early, you might still have access to healthcare. Um, um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the critical thing, and I think uh, you, you explained it well, is that uh, indeed um, it's, it's, it is indeed uh, access to healthcare, which is uh, driving the worst of this. Um, I, I'm going to be blunt. I, I had COVID and it's a horrible thing to have. And, um, you know, I am a middle-aged man and uh, found myself, um, you know, panting, uh, you know, trying to suffer, you know, suffer through the shortness of breath. So whatever you are in, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing to have. Um, but even here in, in the United States, um, or not even at this point, I think uh, at this point we understand that the increasingly the United States is not capable of providing the health service necessary for its people. We've ensured, uh, privatized it such that the, what is in essence the public commons has been either neglected or, or sold off. So um, I was not in, uh, even as I do have insurance, uh, I tried to call my doctor and was not able to get access to her. So in essence, I had to go through an online uh, interface and uh, have a nurse practitioner, in essence, like, diagnose me through the internet. I don't consider that very good health service. And um, here in, in ostensibly a, a first world country. But, um, you know, countries around the world are... Um, are, well, the remarkable thing is uh, the turnaround over which we uh, see uh, countries that ostensibly are, are, are less wealthy are actually better prepared for such a thing. Uh, um, so the, the fact, the notion of using or, or treating the kind of uh, uh, public health as a, as a commons that are necessary to support uh, can even help countries that... Uh, prepare countries for uh, this outbreak, however terrible any uh, one infection might be. Um, so I would say uh, uh, most definitely, um, you know, Cuba comes to mind in the sense of that uh, despite its uh, comparable co uh, poverty, it, uh, it has invested into the, the notion that uh, the public health is, is something that is uh, to be shared and treasured and uh, uh, prepared for for exactly these kinds of, of uh, outbreaks. Um, 
So the um, one is struck by all the, the different contrasts um, uh, about how uh, you know, you know the countries around the world have uh, responded. And, and my take on it is that pandemics are very much um, uh, a mirror in which a country can see itself. And um, some countries maybe don't like what you see. Uh, I certainly <laughs> don't like what I see in my country. Uh, it's been a total, uh, if I may use a, a medical term, a total shit show. Um, you know, uh, vast uh, parts of the country, in essence, abandoned, uh, thrown to the wolves, as it were, to this virus that is indeed deadly. Um, uh, in New York City, of course, you have um, a quarter of the ambulance drivers are out sick, so at least to a further degradation of uh, services that were, in essence, already subjected to a kind of domestic structural adjustment. Uh, our gov the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, is being touted as a hero, perhaps a, a rival to Trump for the next presidency. But in essence, he helped close 20 hospitals across the state, uh, led to the decline in uh, or increase in ambulance runs and uh, uh, firefighter uh, runs in such a way that uh, already those services were under considerable stress uh, even before the, the pathogen hit. Other countries uh, are, are better prepared for this and you could see them responding in kind. Um, you know, whether whatever criticism China deserves for the, the emergence of the virus, and we didn't quite get to that and we can talk about that again if you like. Um, but, um, uh, in, and of course, there was a typical reaction of, uh, in essence, uh, punishing whistleblowers for pointing out mm. that this thing is real. But for uh, all those faults, uh, they took it seriously and they brought the full might of the state in such a way to uh, take and provide the resources that were necessary to deal with the uh, scale of the outbreak. And, uh, you know, build a hospital in 10 days, that's the, 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 the major story. But there are other things in terms of going to house to house, uh, making sure that uh, people are attended to. Uh, here in the States, uh, you have extraordinary examples uh, that are astonishing of, in essence, what is, uh, would be a, a shock to all of us to see the decline of an empire in real time. Uh, in essence, the end of... Of, uh, in essence, a failing nation state. And the examples that come to mind, I, I, uh, there was a report in the Chicago Sun-Times of the state controller, in essence, the treasurer of the state, uh, racing up north to meet some guy who knew another guy who knew some folk, uh, some Chinese factories who were producing N95 masks. They meet in a, the, uh, the parking lot of a McDonald's in which the controller hands over this guy three a check for 3.5 million U.S. dollars to be able to buy these masks because, in essence, the federal government here can't provide those masks or the ventilators. And so all the states are, in essence, are set off against each other in such a way that they are bidding for ventilators. Uh, so the price of the ventilators have exploded in such a way that the states can only buy a few ventilators at a time. Um, you have the example of um, M the Republican governor of Massachusetts, um, who in essence was repeatedly outbidded by the federal government to get supplies because they're all in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have state governments uh, in competition with the federal government, uh, unable to provide the mass for his medical staff uh, in the state. So he gets together with Robert Kraft, who's the owner of the U.S. football team, the uh, New England Patriots. <laughs> 
They, uh, in, in essence, uh, hatch a plan with the, the Chinese consul to the United States to, in essence, fly the New England Patriot uh, 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 team plane to China to load up on uh, N95 masks and ventilators and to fly back to Massachusetts so that it wouldn't be seized by the federal government. So in essence, you have the states uh, down to doing whatever they can to base, be able to um, provide uh, services for, uh, or, or even the basic equipment for their medical teams. You, and here's the, in essence, the, the very divides that you were speaking of are in full force here. The Brooklyn Nets, the US basketball team uh, out in New York City, all its members were provided with uh, uh, COVID tests, even though none of them provided, showed symptoms. On the other hand, the nurses uh, in New York City who display symptoms are not able to get tests to confirm whether they have COVID. Uh, so, I mean, these are our, our pictures and um, so scenarios uh, that one hears elsewhere around the world. And frankly, we will hear those uh, as well. I'm uh, be straight up that uh, as you raised, um, you know the 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 you know global south uh, the north south divide will in fact uh, in all likelihood be uh, represented um, uh, as the virus moves across the world. Um, the viruses, uh, not just COVID, but all sorts of viruses, once they get into the human population, in essence, move like uh, water through cracks and ice uh, toward the, the poorest and, and, and less taken care of. Um, so there is indeed the genuine concern that the global south will be uh, subsequently being hit the worst. Uh, Mike Davis has been very good on this point in terms of uh, his, his research on what happened in 1918 outbreak. Um, uh, indeed, uh, you know, the, the greatest mortality happened in India where the during a drought, the, the British continued to export uh, its food to feed mm. uh, Great Britain at the expense of India. So something like 6% of total mortality of 1918 came out of India. Uh, so, you know, exploitation not only leads to differences in exposure, but in differences in the, uh, the underlying uh, conditions that people have. Uh, Hunger and, and uh, uh, failure to access to clean water is, uh, of course, part of that. It's not just what's in your body, but our bodies are fundamentally integrated with our local environments. So um, uh, that uh, differentiation is going to lead to, in all likelihood, uh, to some populations being uh, devastated more than others. Uh, but my point about the United States thing is that, indeed, uh, um, the global South, as it were, are in very much in, in pockets of the United States. It's an empire in decline, and it's going to internalize its colonialism in such a way that populations here are, are going to suffer some of the, the worst aspects of it um, already. And it gets back to your point about the environment, um, uh, new research coming in showing that uh, uh, exposure to particulate matter is apparently a, a, a direct proximate um, cause in terms of uh, outcomes, in terms of uh, mm. whether one survives COVID. It explains in part why uh, uh, African-Americans here are suffering some of the worst uh, case fatality rates. Uh, the environmental racism is being imprinted. It's in, uh, integrated with uh, the exposure to the virus. Uh, so, you know, you, and you have these terrible pictures coming out of New York City of, of black and brown people forced to go to work while uh, more affluent are able to shelter in place because they can afford it. Uh, you have uh, the subways in New York um, 
primarily uh, one of the few jobs in New York City, uh, professional jobs, well-paying union jobs for African-Americans. They weren't allowed to wear masks by the Metro Transit Authority because it would give a bad appearance to the public. They subsequently have suffered terribly uh, in terms of the, the loss of, uh, um, of uh, labor force that leads to the decline in subways that are put on the, on the rail, which makes the uh, trains even that much more crowded so that uh, many of the black and, and brown working class having to go to work to pay their bills are stocked up and together, uh, leading to more infection. Um, so this is uh, likely to happen around the world where the, the virus will take out um, much of these services, leading to a decline in the capacity of systems to respond to that, which leads to the increase in the transmission of the virus. And I think, you know, if there's any silver lining here at all, is, is as you say, this virus has this ability to open our eyes to the nature of our own societies and what is going on. Um, and, and it just strikes me as really quite interesting that what we're talking about is, a, you're talking about deforestation, you're talking about new infections arising out of, uh, out of that, you're talking about the, the destruction of uh, small, um, small farmers' uh, ability to produce, who are, who are the ones who can feed the world. And all of this is also contributing to uh, global warming and uh, uh, climate chaos. So there are all sorts of uh, links uh, uh, here. Um, The the, the main public policy, uh, whether you're talking from Dhaka to Djibouti or Cape to Cairo, is that, one, you wash your hands but most people don't have access to water. You soap, they don't have enough income right. to do that. And then social distancing. Uh, when most of these people live in slums where they're living on top of each other, there's, there's no sanitation, there's no water, there's no space between the, the, the shacks. Uh, so social distancing is, uh, is, is, is meaningless. Um, and, and so... So what needs to be done? Um, I, I, it's interesting, just a couple of days ago, to see a news item about that in Bolivia, those who are living in the shacks have decided, well, we're going to demonstrate on the streets because it's no safer uh, there than where we are living. Uh, is that something you foresee developing? Well, I, I think it's clear. Um... You know, um, you know, peoples around the world are, are confronted by uh, immediate life and death, and that happens every day, you know. And um, I think a shock for many Americans is this notion that somehow, all of a sudden, you know, we are confronted with uh, the problems that much of the world uh, has to, to grapple with. And um, uh, I would argue that the American people are, in essence, largely a cowed populace at this point. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't um, means by which to uh, efforts to fight back, uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, Occupy and all those uh, uh, movements, of course. But um, uh, peoples around the world have a, an, an apparent, a clear eye, my view, clear eye view of, of the uh, the structures of empire from global north to south and within the, their neocolonial um manifestations within their own country. So um, on the one hand, there is some aspect of relief of being able to see 
you know, the, the emperor, as it were, has no clothes. This is what the, the structure that we're in and the difficulty of, of trying to fight back and, and uh, obtain uh, the resources necessary to survive. Um, it certainly sets up, uh, uh, as you say, uh, uh, potential confrontations as they should. Um, you know, I'm going to be very clear, COVID is not something to mess around with. Uh, it is indeed perhaps not as deadly as what uh, could happen uh, in, in due course from other pathogens. Um, but it is indeed, um, without the health infrastructure and the public health infrastructure, uh, can very much be a, a deadly pathogen. So I am not one to speak to tell what the people of the Global South should do or, or in any way. I do imagine that uh, given the, the history of resistance that we will be seeing uh, in due course um, considerable organization against that. Uh, not, uh, I imagine the two prongs to this. Um, um, one, uh, force the government to provide resources necessary to protect people's lives, which of course is an ongoing thing going back hundreds of years. Um, and at the same time, uh, a move toward uh, aspects of uh, mutual aid in which um, uh, parallel governance uh, is built into uh, providing as best as one can the services that the government will in, uh, inevitably attempt to neglect. Um, every government around the world is responding to this way, not merely materially or not responding to it materially. There's an aspect of a, an attempt to parlay this into, a, if not a, an attempt to pro protect power, but to project power. And so it gets back to the notion of the mirror. And I think uh, countries uh, from the global north, the global south are, are an attempt to, in a, in a kind of uh, their version of disaster capitalism, attempting to use this as a, a means to force their populations to see uh, this outbreak in, in the eyes of those who rule. And uh, uh, you know, the, the examples uh, that come to mind uh, include efforts to try to b blame uh, uh, immigrants for the, uh, the spread of the virus uh, in an attempt to, um, uh, uh, in the case of the, of the Brits, their effort to try to impose on their populace uh, Malthusianism back to their Victorian age of letting the virus just burn through, um, which is, uh, uh, of course, merely just a reflection of their underlying um, uh, political premises. But I imagine that uh, uh, peoples around the world are going to see uh, their government's attempt to wash their hands, uh, to use the terrible uh, notion of responsibility for this. Um, but um, so yes, to answer your question, we're going to see this uh, uh, recapitulated uh, from uh, place to place around the world. So um, is this, is uh, the new coronavirus the last of the uh, of them or are there going to be new new coronaviruses and what can be done to prevent their e emergence um well here i, I wanted to, uh, i'm gonna very much answer your question <laughs> i want to tie back uh in, into something earlier is, is that um you know, I, I, I kind of cut off myself there uh, at, at the notion of these kind of regional um, circuits, as it were, between the local forest and, and the cities. But we have to ask ourselves, um, how did this come about? And there are some uh, One Health, Echo Health uh, researchers who focused on what uh, local indigenous and smallholders do in terms of cutting into the forest, leading to this spillover. 
those groups in part are funded by um, some of the very companies that are driving the uh, deforestation in the first place. So in essence, science is as much for sale as any other uh, commodity. And you do have uh, some scientists in the global north willing and able to take money to be able, be able to stick the blame on smallholders in the indigenous. Uh, so in essence, they are focused on what's called an absolute geography, meaning what is happening in the location in which the spillover happened. Uh, and that's not to say that that's not something we would look into, but the effort is to uh, distract and detract from what we call relational geographies, meaning what happens on one side of the world affects uh, the other side. And so our group's focus has been more on how uh, circuits of capital move from one part of the world to the other. Uh, where did the money come from to cause the development and deforestation in, in the first place? And so our notion is that places like London, New York, and Hong Kong, which are centers of capital, are as much disease hotspots as anywhere else because their uh, finances are, are driving the deforestation that lead to the spillover in the first place. Um, so there's a struggle over the um, scientific notions of uh, what qualifies as uh, cause and effect. And uh, I think it's imperative that uh, all of us across the world, Global North and Global South, uh, uh, attempt to uh, uh, put our flag in the ground, as it were, and, and de 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 define the, the nature of the problem extending uh, out beyond merely what's happened in Guinea, what happened, what's happened in China. Uh, there's a much uh, greater picture going on. Uh, in our latest article, we uh, provide the scenario or describe uh, how uh, millions of people in New York City are, sh are sheltering in place uh, in housing that was overseen by uh, a former Goldman Sachs executive uh, under Mayor de Blasio, who was uh, the deputy mayor for housing. And, uh, you know, obviously this is not this woman's fault, this outbreak at all, but she represents a symbol because uh, coming out of the, uh, the uh, 2009 uh, uh, Great Recession, Goldman Sachs, along with many of the other investment firms, were able to parlay 63% of the uh, of federal finances uh, uh, coming out uh, to help the, uh, the banks survive uh, the disaster of their own making. Goldman Sachs was able to basically uh, clear its overhead and then look to diversify its funding out of housing and other uh, such sectors. And they began to uh, put money into uh, uh, Chinese agribusiness. Uh, including the company that end up um, uh, supporting um, uh, uh, buying up uh, Smithfield, the largest uh, hog producer in the world. But in addition, uh, they bought 10 poultry farms uh, in uh, a province uh, within striking distance of Wuhan and, and clearly within the uh, uh, wildlife uh, catchment of that uh, market that uh, was supplied with uh, uh, wild animals. And so, you know, is it a direct, uh, is, did Goldman Sachs cause COVID? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to uh, paint a picture here that uh, indeed what happens on one side of the world happens on, uh, has a, a deep and important impact on the other. And so you have a horrible, terrible irony of millions of people in New York City sheltering down from a virus that, uh, yes, came from on the other side of the world, but was in part caused by uh, some of the very investment firms that are taking care of, of New York City at the expense of uh, the hospitals 
that now many of New York does not have access to because they've been in essence structurally adjusted. So the first thing in terms of answering your question is, is that everybody around the world who isn't uh, part of the 1% needs to start looking to each other that indeed we are uh, often in many ways similar, much more similar than we are to many of the, um, uh, the affluent ruling class that are in each of our countries. Uh, so I think the thing that struck me the other day was uh, the very structural adjustment that the people in West Africa was subjected to and uh, they weren't unable to, uh, unable to get the hospital medical care that they needed to deal with the scale of an outbreak like Ebola has been recapitulated in New York City uh, in one of the the uh, one of the financial capitals of the the, the richest country in the history of humanity, uh, millions of people in New York uh, were also structurally adjusted out of their uh, proper health care. So I think uh, those of us in in New York City or, or uh, uh, countries across New York who are across the United States who aren't able to get the uh, medical care they need should start to see ourselves in the reflection of the peoples around the world who are also structurally adjusted out of their medical care. So that notion of uh, kind of a resurgent internationalism is absolutely necessary. Uh, I was speaking to a farmer from Australia and she put it pithily that uh, we need to get to a place where internationalism can defeat globalization. And uh, I think that kind of emergent uh, sensibility is absolutely critical for us to be able to push back and uh, redefine uh, our, our planet in a way such that we won't select for the next uh, strain of uh, pathogen that this time, next time around, may kill a billion people instead of a couple million. Um, to answer your question, is this the last of it? No, not at all. In fact, our group didn't even have our eyes on the SARS. Um, so, uh, uh, we were focused in on uh, what's called African swine fever, which uh, uh, is an infection that emerged out of Africa, had been circulating uh, among, uh, you know, local uh, uh, hog, but um, uh, wild uh, suet and, and um, uh, ticks is a complex ecology in Africa. It spilled over into uh, some of the colonial powers in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Spain comes to mind, uh, but it subsequently... Uh, in the last 10 years, made its way out back into Europe, spread across Eastern Europe, and uh, within uh, 2018, finally arrived in China, and last year, killed half its hog. Um, and given how uh, human immune systems are so much similar to swine immune systems, that's why we're focused in on organ transplants from uh, hog, it really concerned us that uh, uh, African swine fever, which can be transmitted in all sorts of ways from live hog, dead hog, in the environment, even in processed meat that's been on the shelf for 15 years, uh, we were deeply concerned that uh, African swine fever would be the next one to go uh, to provide the pandemic, to offer the next pandemic. Well, we were proven wrong, but I am not. I don't take much comfort in that because African swine fever is still very much circulating. Uh, the influenzas are circulating and, and uh, diversifying. H5N1, of course, is still out there. Uh, all the other uh, new variants of H1N1, uh, H7N9. Um, Ebola has now made its way into uh, industrial hog in the Philippines. Um, so all this kind of uh, splitting out of the notion of some uh, pathogens emerging out of wild uh Animals, some are, are in essence circulating in livestock, some uh, have already gone human to human and, and blown back into livestock. I think what we he see here is a kind of a petri dish in which uh, pathogens that were previously in essence uh, 
uh, sequestered into a single host or a couple hosts in uh, the forest, uh, 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 deepest forests, has now been able to open up laboratories, as it were, around the world in terms of uh, evolving and uh, testing and uh, uh, figuring out ways by which uh, to infect uh, multiple hosts and, and crack uh, the uh, human immune system. So um, what I'm getting at, and I don't have good news, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, this 100-year lull between one global pandemic, dead, really deadly one uh, global pandemic and another, we're not going to have another 100-year lull. It's unlikely going to happen in, in short course. Um, I, I'm not going to give you a time or, or which one. That's the, the, always the hard one. Um, but in terms of projecting out, uh, we're in, in deep doo-doo. Um, but we can do something. There are things we can do. Um, we can, uh, in essence, uh, decide that we are at a, a historical uh, uh, moment, a precipice that requires us to, in essence, uh, redefine ourselves as a, as a civilization, as a humanity, uh, as a species. Uh, we can say that, uh, you know, climate change is an obvious example that is indeed uh, deeply integrated with uh, disease dynamics. And we can say, uh, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And we can, in essence, uh, uh, put on our, our uh, uh, you know, our, our um, you know, game face, as it were, and say, now it's time to do something else. And that is, in essence, uh, move toward the opposite of what uh, industrial agriculture is about. We need to, in essence, uh, reintroduce uh, 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 farmer autonomy. We need to uh, promote uh, community independence. Uh, in, in rural areas around the world. We need to stop treating them as sacrifice zones to, in essence, supply agribusiness, which in my mind is a suburban phenomenon. Almost all the agribusiness uh, headquarters are in sur suburbia. They treat rural areas despite their uh, mask they put on of being all shucks, uh, we're farmers too. Not at all. It's uh, a, a cutthroat uh, capitalism uh, that is in essence uh, ripping uh, rural areas apart. So we need to, in essence, return uh, rural uh, areas into the hands of the, uh, the indigenous and smallholder to, uh, in essence, uh, produce um, uh, um, you know, crops and uh, the food that the world uh, needs uh, along lines that uh, are in the benefit for the community that along the way, by virtue of just being who they are, are going to be produced uh, agroecologies mm. that in essence protect us from the worst of spillovers of deadly disease, multiple uh, uh, breeds of livestock and poultry, you have uh, crop livestock uh, integration going on, you have, uh, so if there is an outbreak on one farm down the road because the diff uh, breeds around them are different, it's unlikely to spill over, pathogens in essence are selected for more attenuation, uh, in essence, just by being who they are, rural communities uh, get, uh, in, in, who are provided the autonomy they need to be able to make decisions about what to do in their community and uh, how to pay their bills are going to be in a better position to be, in essence, protect uh, local uh, forests, local uh, wildlife, uh, and local uh, rural um, uh, epidemiological systems in such a way that if there are spillovers, yes, we're going to have diseases from here and out. There's no way of, of killing them all off. Maybe we need more to think along the lines of having, arriving at some sort of detente. 
Uh, and maybe we have to really think of big picture, kind of a return, emerge out of what is the worst of alienated capitalism and return uh, back to Earth in which we as a species are uh, uh, part of a, of a broader uh, ecological cascade. Wow. Well, <laughs> Easier said uh, than done, but... Uh, yeah, you know. of course. But, Rob, uh, the breadth and depth of what you've uh, covered uh, in this uh, short, uh, short talk, I mean, we could talk for another few hours, and I'm sure we wouldn't get uh, even half of what needs to be, be dealt with. But, um, I, you know, I think it does uh, illustrate uh, that uh, there is an important book out here, Big Farms Make Big Flu, which is available for monthly review. Um, you'll see the, the, the link on the screen there. Um, and, and I really like to thank you for taking this, this time to be with us and to try to go into these issues uh, and deal with the politics of it, as well as deal with upstream, which nobody is talking about, uh, unfortunately, or very few. Um, so I'd like to, to thank you very much and look forward to your next book. We're all waiting hungrily <laughs> for that. So thank you for joining our show. Uh, really appreciate that, Rob. Well, it's been a pleasure. And um, I, I want to say to everybody um, that uh, uh, hang in there, organized, uh, look to your neighbor and uh, people elsewhere around the world. Uh, uh, humanity uh, can defeat this. Uh, not only this particular pathogen, I don't mean to speak in war terms at all, but um, uh, but in, in, in essence, uh, uh, solidarity is going to win the day. And uh, back to what the farmer said, um, let's look toward internationalism to defeat globalization. And I think uh, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to continue to live on this beautiful planet together. Indeed. As they say, a luta continua, and not as uh, many of our regimes uh, interpret it, the looting continues. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, very right. good. Well, thank Thanks you very for much. joining us. Okay, and, and all have the a best. Wonderful day. And you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you very much for joining us on this rather much longer uh, um, day than uh, interview than I'd expected. But uh, I hope you'll agree with me that it was a very, very rich. Um, uh, discussion. Um, we will be putting this uh, video up on uh, on the Daraja uh, website. Uh, in the meantime, you can see it on, on Facebook uh, as well as on, on YouTube. Thank you for joining us today.